Hello. Welcome to Nature Mono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode four of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest for this episode is Dr. Aike Rotz, Associate Professor of Japan Studies at the University of Oslo in Norway. Rotz is author of the 2017 monograph, Shinto, Nature, and Ideology in Contemporary Japan, Making Sacred Forests. He's also the principal investigator of the European Research Council-funded project, Whales of Power, Aquatic Mammals, Devotional Practices, and Environmental Change in Maritime East Asia. The Whales of Power project is trans-Pacific in scope, and studies changing relations between humans and aquatic mammals in maritime regions of North and Southeast Asia, focusing on popular ritual beliefs and practices. The website for this project, for which you can find a link on the website for this podcast, reads, In various parts of East Asia, aquatic mammals are associated with divine power and serve as objects of devotion. Cetaceans are worshipped in South and Central Vietnam, as life-saving deities. The spirits of whales are venerated during ritual ceremonies in some Japanese coastal areas. Aquatic mammals have all been associated with water deities in China, Cambodia, Indonesia, and the Ryukyu Islands. These animals continue to carry significant symbolic capital today, if no longer as gods, at least as local heritage and symbols of nature conservation, acquiring new meanings in the context of secularization forced displacement, and environmental degradation. I spoke with Dr. Rotz about the wide scope of this project and about how the sea factors into the field of Japanese religious studies. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Aike Rotz. Well, uh, yeah, I, w- I want to thank you so much for for joining uh, today and for participating in the podcast. And so, I guess the first question um, I want to begin with is just whether or not you could give us a brief overview uh, of the Whales of Power project, and you know, what does the project entail, um, and what are some of the intended outcomes? Yes. Well, um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, this is. Uh, very interesting. I, you know, I had a look at the pod- podcast and especially the focus on, on the sea, which I think is, is very interesting um, and very important as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, and so m- my project, um, Whales of Power, full title, Whales of Power, Aquatic Mammals, Devotional Practices and Environmental Change in Maritime East Asia. Um, this is a project that's funded by the European Research Council through a starting grant. Um, and it started last year in 2019, and it's a, a five-year grant, so we have funding until 2023, or, or, or possibly into 24. So it's quite a long, um, uh, quite a long project, quite a, a, a big grant, mm-hmm. um, and which means that we could hire, um, we hired one postdoc for three years, and then we hired several PhD candidates, three PhD candidates. Um, and as you may know, like in, 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 in Norway, as in some other European countries, PhD candidates, they're like paid positions. So they're, they're hired to do a, um, a research project um, for a PhD. Um, 
So at the main focus of the project, as the title suggests, is, is whales, um, the animals, not the, not the country. Um, but, <laughs> um, and of course, you know, this is a topic that you can, you can approach from many different angles. Mm. Um, but what we do in this project is, is, um, is look at the role of whales in popular worship traditions in different parts of East and Southeast Asia thematically. So that includes Japan. Of course, in Japan, when we think about whales in relation to worship traditions, mostly people would think about whaling traditions. Um, examples like uh, Matsuri festivals that where, where traditional whaling practices are reenacted. Mm-hmm. Um, traditional meaning mostly Edo period whaling practices. Uh, or Buddhist Kuyo memorial services for the spirits of whales. So th- those are those are kind of the, the things that that often come to mind. Um, but it's important then to think that that human whale relations in Japanese histories they're not limited to whaling to hunting. Uh, they also include uh, the use of of beached of stranded whales. So places where people would not go out to hunt actively, but where whales would beach, where there were beliefs that, for example, that these were um divine gifts or that these were uh, reincarnated people would give something back because whales representing resources again mostly in the edo period i'm talking about now so mm-hmm. that those kind of rituals of well gratitude and pacification of those spirits is not only for whaling but also for beach whales but there are also places in japan historically which have received much less scholarly uh, attention where whales were considered uh, embodiments of, 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 of maritime deities, such as Ibisu. Mm-hmm. They were not hunted. Um, so these kind of beliefs, this is, these are examples from Japan, but the project doesn't only look at, at Japan. We're also looking at other parts of the region. Um, myself and one of my PG candidates also doing research in Vietnam. Uh, in Vietnam, there is the, there is the um, um, especially along the coast of South and Central Vietnam, people worship a maritime god Om Nam Hai, the Lord of the South Sea, but mostly they just call him Ka Om, which means Lord Fish. Um, and uh, and and whales also there when they when they die when they're on the beach, they're often given funeral ceremonies, ritual uh, worship. Um, and there are also those beliefs, many beliefs there, the fishers, not just beliefs, people have experienced this, fishers. Um, who were who were saved by whales, mm. and they and they say on on the sea, you know, uh, and they or dolphins for that matter, and they mm. uh, attribute this to that particular deity. So that's another thing we're looking at. My postdoc is looking at traditional whaling and also beliefs of whales as ancestral spirits in Indonesia, um, one island in particular where that's where where people are are, are still practicing this. Um, and then also we have a PG candidate who's looking at the dugong, which is not a, a, a whale, it's not a cetacean, but it's a different kind of, 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 of marine mammal, um, um, which in the Ryukyu Islands was long, was worshipped or was seen as a sacred animal, uh, and which in recent years have has acquired new significance as a, um, a symbol, maybe more than a symbol actually, like a, a, a living presence uh, at Henoko, uh, this place where they're constructing new uh, military base, and that right. sort of becomes a rallying point of the anti-base activists. Sure. Um, sure. So those are kind of like thematically what the project is about. We also have one PG candidate 
who, who, who is looking at the notion of Aboriginal subsistence whaling as it's uh, um, uh, ratified uh, um, by these uh, uh, international treaties of the IWC, the International Whaling uh, Commission, and sort of looking at, so it's more like a conceptual history mm -hmm. uh, of that notion, and then looking at different indigenous uh, practices, not so much in Asia, but also other parts of the more the Asia Pacific region more broadly. Um, so those are kind of the thematically what we're doing. And then, and then theoretically, I think the project has sort of three main objectives. Um, the first is trying to break out of what I see as a big problem in especially East Asian studies, uh, methodological nationalism, sort mm -hmm. of taking for granted as a nation state, the modern nation state, be it Japan or China or Korea, but the modern nation state is the main unit of analysis. Um, so I think what we need is a much more, and there's lots of interesting research happening also his, uh, by historians uh, uh, in recent years. So this kind of um, going along with this, but I think we need much more, not just transnational research, but also actually comparative research. And the comparative, the kind of comparison that doesn't compare case A as Japanese or in case B as Vietnamese, that doesn't sort of frame it in terms of comparing one nation and another nation, mm. but rather looks much more at particulars and, and framing different locals. So that's the first objective, sort of this con contributing to a, a, a new or a stronger comparative, par comparative paradigm in, in Asian studies. In terms of religious studies, um, uh, uh, there are two objectives. One is looking at rethinking um, what is often called, or what used to be called folk religion or folk belief, and then now is more often called popular religion, um, which is, these, these are different difficult categories, but, but looking at um, local ritual practices, worship practices, and, and the changing meanings of those, um, like festivals, for example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of those local practices in, in the 21st century, uh, in relation to you know uh, uh, social change, political change, economic, not least ecological change, mm -hmm. and that's and the third, the third main objective is especially this issue of ecological change, is bringing some of the insights from environmental humanities, multi-species ethnography, um, in dialogue with the study of religion, mm -hmm. um, because there's lots of work on animals in the study of religion, but much of it is either animals as symbols or animals as um or and or sort of a type of animal ethics like how should how should we as humans um act towards animals right right and both of these are in a way anthropocentric because the first one looks at how humans construct animals as symbols or maybe objects of taboo or objects of divine veneration but mm -hmm. it's still sort of a human-made thing uh and the, the the more ethical question is how should we as humans um, treat animals, right? Relate to it. Um, but what what has happened in in anthropology in recent years, and especially this type of multi-species ethnography, is trying to take animals seriously as historical actors who actually influence what's going on. Right. Um, so that's one of the things we're trying to do in the project is um, uh, uh, trying to or, or rethinking uh, the role of animal actors in ritual practices this is it's very it's it's we're exploring this it's it's very sort of open-ended but uh, and more broadly also 
Um, there's, of course, much work about religion and the environment of religion and ecology is, in a sense, utilitarian, asking mm -hmm. the question, how can religion help contribute to solving environmental problems, for example, right? Okay. And then depending, and some people would say, yes, it can. Look, I found something here in the sacred text. And then others are saying, well, in reality, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but rather than asking that utilitarian question of how could re uh, religion help solve the environmental problem, um, uh, in a way, I'm more interested in looking at how do people actually live through environmental change, climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, environmental degradation, toxic waste, mm -hmm. plastic pollution, um, and how do rituals serve maybe, or how do they work, or how do they help people give meaning, not so much solve, but rather cope with give meaning to these changes of this moment in time that we call the Anthropocene. So those are, that's kind of the third objective, like, okay, thinking about religion and environment in relation, but trying to find some new ways of thinking about this relation that are neither anthropocentric nor utilitarian. That's great. And it kind of brings me to my next question, um, which is actually about your first book um, and how you got interested in, in, in the topic um, of whales and the sea. Um, so your first book, uh, which is called Shinto Nature and Ideology in Contemporary Japan, Making Sacred Forests, right? As the title suggests, it's a look at Japan's forests and it's a book that investigates contemporary efforts to rebrand Shintoism as an environmentalist religion. Um, mm. And so, you know, what, what brought you from the forest to the sea? Um, and you know, what connections do you actually see between your first book and what you're exploring in this project? Right, yeah, thank you. That's a very interesting, um, that's a very good question. Um, well, one thing you. is, uh, at some point during my research, because at first I did that research on, uh, I was interested in, 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 in um, uh, the notion of Shinto as a as a nature religion and that that potentially could have you know some some significance for environmental issues right that's kind of how where I, I started during my master's I became interested in this issue actually already you know before during my BA I was looking for academic literature and of course I found several you know several books and articles where the claim was made that you know Shinto was like this but what I didn't find it was a kind of more um, critical analysis of how this claim then is constructed and also right. how this works out in practice right mm -hmm. um so uh so that's kind of uh, yeah my point of departure for, oh, okay so apparently that hasn't been or had this this discourse hasn't been mapped and the, the existing practices haven't been mapped so that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I did for my PhD, and then sort of I adapted this, uh, did some more work on it, and and that became, um, uh, eventually became the book that you, that you refer to. Um, and during this research, at one point I had an interview with a shrine priest, mm -hmm. who was a, uh, and that was a shrine devoted to Ebisu, and as you probably know, Ebisu is a is a is a maritime god. It's a very popular. It's actually one of the most popular 
kami in all of Japan, one of the most worshipped kami in all of Japan, um, and often it's uh, it's corporate entities, it's companies who 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 uh, invest in uh, who pay for rituals uh, to ebisu. So they there's the idea that ebisu is can help you know uh, bring prosperity when you when you're in in business, uh, and of course as the more uh, uh, historical association with fishery uh, uh but also with other types of maritime industries right like like shipbuilding and so on mm-hmm. um so anyway so i was at the shrine and i was I, w- I had a conversation with this priest and and we're talking a bit about you know his ideas about shinto and nature and so on uh and and at some point we were talking about this the notion of of the sacred grove of chinjunomori which is central in my book mm-hmm. uh, and central to many of these uh, um um, local environmental practices that I discuss, which is mostly tree planting and and forest conservation on a very sort of small scale, um, and uh, so we're discussing some of these initiatives, and then he was actually quite critical. He said he he, he criticized his colleagues for um, being too or sort of focusing too much on forests mm. and on tree planting and ignoring many other problems, environmental problems today including the sea and it was it kind of made sense that he was saying this as he was you know uh, a priest who worked for ibisu right. but interestingly if you look at if you look at much of the much of the research that's been done also by historians in, in, in japanese religion much of it focuses on rice harvest and deities associated with that or on mountains mountain religion uh, of course, the ancestor, the imperial uh, ancestral uh, uh, traditions, the shrines of Ise, um, but there's very little on maritime deities. That's emerging. That's coming now. Right, uh, people are doing this right now. But on, until recently, there was very little, and there is very little research on Ebisu. Um, and then, for various reasons, probably also a, you know a lack of historical sources because it's so much. It's more like the realm of popular religion than the realm of sort of more institutionalized religion, which is probably why you have uh, fewer historical sources uh, in the archives that, you know, historians can look at and so on. But this, this made me interested, like, okay, what actually is, um, what actually is the role of the sea in, 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 in Japan, in modern Japan, uh, and that for a country that's literally surrounded by sea, uh, the sea actually has a, has quite little, uh, it doesn't have such a central place in the national imagination as the mountains or the forest or the, or the rice paddies, right? Um, so kind of that's, 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 uh, uh, that was how I started thinking about it and became interested about it. Then I did more research uh, 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 in Okinawa, which obviously is an, is an island society with quite a, a different uh, uh, religious tradition, also quite different from mainland Japan. Uh, and then the, the, the links between Okinawa, you also have sac- their sacred groves called Utaki, but the links both spiritually uh, and uh, ecologically between these uh, uh, sacred groves, the water uh, inland, like the, the, the local water deities, and and the sea and the maritime. So this is something I became I became uh, really interested in. And then of course there was a link with Vietnam, uh, and I've I've lived in Vietnam. I've, I've, I've visited uh, multiple times, I became more and more interested also in doing research in Vietnam and doing that kind of comparative work that I was talking about. Uh, and I came across these, these, these uh, 
whale temples and attended some of these whale festivals. And that's when I thought, well, there's looking at these whale spirits, whale gods, and how people relate to them. There's certainly some similar processes going on of how local ritual traditions are reconfigured as national heritage, for example, both in Japan and in Vietnam. So I thought there's a great opportunity here uh, uh, that I think in both cases, especially in Vietnam, there's been very little research, uh, especially in other languages than Vietnamese, on those traditions, um, and, uh, and certainly not comparatively. Well, it's interesting that you, um, you know, you, you just shared this idea that you feel like the sea has been somewhat neglected uh, in the study of Japanese religion. And this is something that um, seems to be coming up you know, again and again uh, in this podcast, um, you know, from, from all these different disciplines, people feel that this has sort of historically been the case, but maybe the tide is turning with that. Um, you know, I can think just last year, right, Bloomsbury, who put out your book, uh, just put out this edited volume called, there it is. <laughs> uh, our listeners can't see it, but it's the, the Sea and the Sacred in Japan, um, which is this great book that was edited by Fabio Rambelli. Um, yeah. So why, why, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think, you know, there's been more focus on mountains, um, ancestor worship, you know, these kind of things. Do you have a, do you have a sense of, you know, within the, within the field itself, why um, the sea has been somewhat overlooked and whether or not you feel that, you know, things really are changing. Mm. Um. I think there are two reasons. There are probably more, but there are two reasons now that I come up with. Uh, one is that these mountain traditions, they are fascinating. Mm -hmm. They absolutely are. And, and um, uh, because, because of the ways in which, you know, they combine all these different elements because of the Buddhist cosmology, uh, because of the local kami that are part of this, because of the actual ritual practices, there's something very... Um, the, the, the shugyo, right, the ascetic practices, uh, there's a certain masculinity to that, let's, mm. let's be honest, there is, mm. they're, they're sexy, huh? Um, uh, okay, maybe people who do those rituals wouldn't use that, that word, but, 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 but there's something uh, fascinating and intriguing about it, and then not least, how they are, um, uh, how they're mapped onto the physical landscape, right? right this right. this mandalization of the landscape and so on. I totally understand. I find that fascinating as well. So 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 that that I think is um is is one reason. And of course, very often when 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 young scholars start doing research, they're also influenced by the kind of things that they have already read, what's already out there, uh, and then want want to build on on that. So that's that's how it sort of that's why we have this very strong research tradition uh, of, of, of many people, both in Japan and in Europe and in the US, doing research on, on, on uh, mountain religions. Um, that's one explanation. That explains, maybe doesn't really explain why people haven't looked at the sea so much, but, but, but it explains the, the ongoing interest for that topic, mm -hmm. for, for mountain, uh, mountains. Um, 
But the other reason I think has to do with what I called methodological nationalism, namely that we take certain uh, modern notions of what constitutes Japan, like even the modern map where you have, you know, Tokyo in the center and you have Hokkaido on the far right periphery and where you have Okinawa so far out in the periphery that they need a special box in the corner, right? Because right. mm -hmm. it doesn't fit on the map, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's those, those are the, uh, maps are sort of representations and that's the, the visual representation of Japan that we grow up with. Um, just like our own countries where we live, we grow up with one map. It's a standardized map. Um, and uh, there's a, there are alternative map, sorry, alternative maps. Um, uh, there's the one that uh, uh, Amino Yoshiko used uh, uh, in one of his, uh, uh, his books, where uh, Japan is kind of on the, or like Hokkaido, Honshu, and, 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 and so on, they're kind of on the, on the side, and then you, can, you have the Ryukyu Islands more in the center of the map, mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, so Japan's like on the left, and then, and then if you go further to the right, you have the Philippines, and you have Southeast Asia, and then, of course, mainland China is like on the, the, the bottom of the map. So, so uh, Taiwan, Ryukyu Islands are kind of in the middle there. Well, if you look at it that way, then you see a maritime corridor, right? You see a, a, two seas, the, what we call the East China Sea and the South China Sea that are connected. Mm -hmm. And then you see a bunch of islands and, and, and a big continent surrounding those seas. Yeah? Um, and that's a very different way of thinking, not just East Asia, but East and Southeast Asia right. as an interconnected cultural space, economic space. Um, and that I think can help us also look at, you know, those connections. And this doesn't just apply to Japan. This also applies, of course, to, to the South China Sea, um, where, uh, we we learn to think about different nation states that are competing with each other or maybe sometimes uh, cooperating. There's China, there's Vietnam, there's the Philippines, there's Indonesia, the Malaysia. Um, and of course, that's how it has become and how it is in modern times with the centrality uh, ongoing still, the centrality of the nation state. Um, but in pre-modern times, that was an area of interaction, trade, conflict as well piracy it wasn't always uh, uh, it wasn't always peaceful um but uh, so so sort of it's a way of, of recentering the periphery when you start looking at the sea it means you also think differently spatially and then you can ask a different kinds of questions and all of a sudden it's like yeah but the sea is maybe not on the side out there and the Ryukyu islands maybe it's not like periphery maybe in pre-modern times or early modern times the Ryukyu kingdom was actually quite central in many respects right so so uh, I think that's and and this is something that is emerging throughout the humanities it's not unique to Japanese studies or area studies uh, yeah. uh, also in history and in literature did what they call the blue humanities right this this, yeah. this new interest in the sea so in, in that sense it's it's yeah it was to be expected that uh, also also in the study of Japan we would we would start asking these kind of questions so i'm not i'm not surprised that it's happening it's happening right now but there's so much work that remains to be done because you you mentioned uh, Fabio Rambelli's edited volume which is great mm -hmm. uh, 
but also it raises so many questions. It also shows that it's so much, it's actually very sort of pioneering. Many of these chapters, they're very pioneering, uh, pioneering work and, and they raise many new questions. It also shows that, that it's exactly there in the field of maritime religion and transnational maritime religion, right? right. Uh, the connections between different parts of East and Southeast Asia. There's much work that remains to be done there, both historically and and uh, more anthropologically in contemporary periods. You know, one of the things you you mentioned the word heritage um, a few minutes ago, and th this seems to be a really important word to you and to your work. Um, you know, it's a it's a word that you seem to interrogate a lot, in particular. Uh, you know, this this practice of designating sites in Japan, UNESCO World Heritage sites. Um, yeah. What, what is it about the concept of heritage that is so important to your work and how does it relate to the Whales of Power project? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I'll just briefly mention that um, uh, earlier this year, last year, uh, I, I edited a book together with Mark Theowen, my colleague, called Sacred Heritage in Japan, uh, where we have some um, really good case studies uh, written by the by contributors uh, about particular um, particular places or particular ritual traditions um, uh, mostly in Japan uh, um, that have been redefined reclassified as heritage or in some case cases uh, it's it's provincial or it's national heritage but most of the cases look at um, UNESCO World Heritage or UNESCO uh, intangible uh, cultural heritage Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the reason we became interested in this um, was not so much like personally I wasn't I wasn't particularly interested in UNESCO or World Heritage uh, when I was doing the Shinto research right but increasingly I noticed that uh, the UNESCO brand, so to speak, or the UNESCO, the 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 logo, the mm -hmm. the um, um, the status that comes with with you know being listed as a World Heritage site, that is something that is quite central to many uh, institutional identities throughout Japan, and not least marketing, right, mm -hmm. tourism, um, and that this was more prominent in Japan than in Europe. Uh, but I feel also in Europe it's becoming, it's actually becoming, it's more and more used, you know, also for marketing purposes, for example. But some famous, like fam some famous churches in Italy, they have so many tourists already, they don't really need that, right? <laughs> right. Um, but, but you see that in East Asia, and this is not only a Japanese thing, you see this in South Korea, in Vietnam, that uh, in China, that, you know, the, the, the you know, if you're a UNESCO World Heritage Site, that's, that has something to say for the tourists you attract, but also for issues of patronage, for issues of um, maintenance, who pays for repairs, right? Uh, so, and uh, this differs from country to country, the, the heritage uh, preservation laws. Um, but for uh, religious institutions, it can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also the, the, the uh, uh, maybe unwanted consequences. So I did uh, uh, field work a couple of, Oh, I went a couple of times between um, 2016, 2018, that period, um, 
did several shorter uh, uh, periods of field work in Okinawa. And I looked at Seifautaki, and Seifautaki is, is one of those sacred groves, but it's one that historically is quite important, was important within the Ryukyu kingdom as a, as a worship site connected to the monarchy in Shuri. Um, and uh, uh, because that's a place where then the high priestess, the highest Noro in that system, was inaugurated. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting, I mean, ecologically, it's just a very interesting um, spot and, and, and has a very interesting history. Um, but so that was listed together with Shuri Castle and several of these other, these Rishiku or several of these other uh, castles in, in the northeastern Okinawa, mm -hmm. uh, was listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, in 2000, if I remember correctly. But, but it was promoted for tourist purposes um, from around 2008. And then you see a gradual increase, actually quite a rapid increase in 2008, 2016, 17, in the number of tourists and goes up as, as visitors visit. So that on some days, especially on holidays and weekends, if you visit that port, it's packed with people, mm. right? And, but at the same time, it's a worship site. So there's still people coming there uh, there are spirit mediums coming there uh, to do their rituals. There are other Okinawans who, who, who come to, to eat and make ritual offerings and so on. Um, and then there are tourists everywhere because there's pictures, etc. So this causes conflict. Um, so I became really interested in what are the consequences of this type of um, turning sacred sites into a heritage the political significance how do how do countries how do states use the heritage uh, what happened in Vietnam a couple of years ago is that uh, that spirit medium tradition was born the Dao Mao which is like mother worship uh, tradition uh, but these this until fairly recently were
know, and so much of that speaks to the comparative work, right, that the Whales of Power project is, is really taking up. Um, I'm curious, you know, because it is such a, a, a project that's based on collaboration and on comparison, um, is there any particular sort of resonance between um, some of these ritual practices that, you know, you as a group have been investigating? Is there any particular thing that sort of jumps out at you as, as being a, a real surprise or um, something you didn't quite expect? Well, one of the things that I wasn't um, really aware of before mm -hmm. when I you know, wrote the proposal and before I started, um, which are becoming increasing, which I'm, I'm now sort of, yeah, which I'm getting really interested in, um, is not not so much the whales and the relation to the maritime deities but the centrality of goddesses of female deities mm. uh, especially in vietnam mm -hmm. um is that when you go to a temple that's that's dedicated to the whale god there's very often uh it's right next to either a te another temple or in, or in the same temple like there's an altar um for uh, uh, female deities. And these can be both uh, local goddesses. There's the goddess of the water, Batui. There is, uh, but it can also be Guan Yin, yeah? or Kanon, mm. as she's called in, 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 in Japan. Guan mm. Am in Vietnam uh, is very central there, uh, or very often present somehow, and also present in the rituals. Mm. Um, or they're former, they're, um, Female, the female deities, goddesses that were originally Cham, so they were pre-Vietnamese. There's also, by the way, um, there's quite a, a convincing theory that, that that this whale god was also originally worshipped as a, um, uh, or was actually a Cham, uh, a Cham deity. So that this is, or this is, became Vietnamese only in the 19th century. So before that, we're talking about a, an indigenous worship tradition. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there's so there are some goddesses that, that are very clearly that were originally Cham and that were then Vietnamized in a way. Mm. Um, and But in Japan, so I'm, I really want to look into this, but I, I, I haven't really done that yet. Uh, there are also the connections with uh, uh, Benzaiten, who is a goddess that's originally from 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 India, right? That's also travel. Who's also traveled and is connected with the sea. And so some of these some of these shrines in in Tohoku um, that are devoted to um, or dedicated to Ebisu. Uh, there's also some there's some links with with Benzaiten. Um, these are things I have to look into more. I, I honestly really don't know yet, um, yeah. but I don't think that it's coincidence. And I think the sort of the centrality of 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 the goddess uh, in maritime religion and many of these goddesses that, that are transnational. Of course, there's Mazu as well, right? Mazu is also a very transnational maritime uh, goddess who's worshipped um, uh, throughout East and Southeast Asia. Um, there have been an interesting studies of goddesses throughout, especially in India, but also in other parts of, of also in China and other parts of Asia. But mm -hmm. they mostly look at local traditions. Right. But what is 
what are the transnational connections there between between these different uh, local goddesses? I don't think I can do that within the space of this this project, but but this is certainly something that hopefully I can continue looking into. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I realize the question was maybe a little unfair um, because of the state of things right now. And this is something I, I wanted to ask you as well, because this yeah. is a, a multi-year project, um, transnational, uh, you know, yeah. many people involved. And I imagine, you know, there's a, a really significant ethnographic element to the research. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious how COVID-19 has affected the project so far. Yeah, um, it has been a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's been difficult. Um, I fortunately uh, went to Japan, uh, sorry, not Japan, to Vietnam right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I did have the opportunity to do some field work, but then at the time already several festivals were canceled. So I could observe some ritual practices, but not like the big festivals. Um, and but we're supposed we, yeah uh, i was supposed to go to japan last summer and then i postponed it to this summer it's probably not going to happen and and also wanted to go to vietnam again to uh, attend festivals um not happening this year maybe next year who knows right um so that's definitely a challenge it's also been challenging for my uh, phd candidates and postdoc mm -hmm. uh although Fortunately, two of the three PhD candidates are now doing field work. Okay. Uh, so one of them is in Vietnam and the other one is in Okinawa. And it was a bit of a, it was a bit difficult, you know, getting there, but uh, and, uh, they had to be in quarantine and get tested and everything. But eventually they managed to get to the field so they can do. But of course, it affects the kind of things that are happening. So it, it affects also the way that they have to do that. They do their research because there are not so many events. Right. So, so it means they will ask some different different questions but at least they're in the field um my postdoc working on indonesia she can't go so she's just waiting she's been there before luckily so she has material from before but th that she can can work on but but of course she wants to go back and do more uh, additional uh, field work she's she's waiting uh, and for myself yeah i'm, I'm also uh, hope probably will have look more into um uh, primary sources, uh, historical sources, um, both from Japan and Vietnam. But then again, especially with these Vietnamese sources, like just getting them here is, is, is a challenge. Sure. Um, so, uh, so that's one thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm hoping that's, so the, the good news is that we have five years for the whole project. Right. Um, but of course the planning <laughs> has to be changed somewhat, but I'm still, I'm still, uh, optimistic that I will be able to travel to Vietnam and Japan, even though it, it will be a bit later in the project, and uh, and then will be able also to write my uh, write my book that I'm planning. Um, the other challenge, of course, is that we can't really. We had several workshops planned, and we haven't really been able to do those. Um, and so I'm considering uh, alternative would be to do to do it all digitally or um, uh, waiting. Um, so now I'm thinking like, we'll, there's one big uh, workshop, either it's gonna be a big workshop or a small conference, <laughs> but uh, on uh, animal actors in, in, in Asian religions, mm. that will lead to an edited volume. Um, 
that was planned for this year that I'm thinking of doing next year. And then hopefully we could do it. We can have a physical uh, conference or a hybrid type uh, uh, meeting. Um, yeah, so it's all, it's a bit, you know, uncertain. But uh, but I'm more optimistic now than I was a couple of months ago. <laughs> That's good. I, I did see um, on the website for the project, um, there was uh, a write-up about your your uh, postdoc, or maybe it was a PhD student who who was in Okinawa, and photos of him with the the dugong and yeah. So it seems like um, the website is a good place for people to go to find out what's going on with the project, kind of keep up to date. Um, yeah. Do you I mean social media with it as well or is, is that right? Yeah. So, there? so there's, there's the, 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 the website uh, where we, there, there is some, you know, some news every now and then. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that picture, I, that, I have to mention, uh, that's not the dugong in Okinawa. Oh, okay. That, that is a dugong in the uh, aquarium in Toba in Mie. Uh, that was donated by the, government of the philippines to japan as a sort of um uh, wow. an act of uh, uh, international diplomacy you know how china has the, their their panda diplomacy right yeah. australia sends koalas to to taiwan that's that's the animals in international diplomacy that's not that's a, that's another topic that's really fascinating <laughs> so anyway so this dugong uh, was uh, kind of a, an expression of the friendship between the Philippines and Japan, just so you know, it's, it's, not, it's not actually one of the last remaining dugong in, in Okinawa because they're, nobody knows where they are. Huh? That's one of the problems is sure. that they're kind of hard to find. Sure. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so to go, go back to your question, about this, so there's the website where we uh, hopefully this year a bit more regularly than last year put some news. That's, uh, um, uh, so I think, yeah, if you, it's on the it's on the University of Oslo website, but if you just if Google Wales of Power, it will come up. Yeah, and we'll then, put a uh, link to it up on the our website as well. So. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, and then we're on Facebook as well, uh, so you can you can uh, like Wales of Power on Facebook, uh, and that way, and uh, that's not just uh, that's more uh, different types of not only about the project, but also uh, interesting uh, news about about Wales. It's not so much like marine biology, but but especially whales in relation to cultural practices, right? right. For example, um, when I come across an article about um, uh, uh, the spiritual significance of whales in indigenous cultures in, in in the Arctic, for example, those kind of articles I also share on that on that Facebook page. Um, so uh, people are very welcome to to like uh, to like us on Facebook. Yeah. That's great. Um, and I have one one last question for you. This is something that I, I ask everybody uh, on this season. Um, it's a personal question. You know, what is your own relationship with the ocean, with the sea? Did you grow up on the sea? Is it something that you have had a, a kind of long history with? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the countryside in, in, in the Netherlands. The sea was never very far away, mm -hmm. um, even though... It's not like I saw it every day or something, but uh, a couple couple times a year. And I grew up near the Vaden Sea. I don't know if you know this, but it's kind of this very interesting kind of this inland sea. It's a very um, ecologically, it's a very unique area 
that stretches from the Netherlands to Germany to Denmark with mm. many small islands and so on, There's many birds. And um, so, so when I think, so that's my sort of, my sea is not like the, primarily the sea that I grew up, grew up with is the sea of mud and clay, <laughs> birds and rain, and it's gray, but it's space, you know? Right, and so we would right. walk on the dike because there are these dikes in the, in the north um uh, you walk and there are just a couple of sheep and other otherwise it's just this open space very different from you know people think the netherlands are very densely populated country with you know uh, cities and, and towns everywhere um and and neatly divided into you know, small blocks and everything but but that's very different from there in the north of Odensee. that's like it's open it's space, it's air. And I, I tell you this, because now I live in Oslo and we have we have some we have a fjord here, right? So we have there's some water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I miss the open sea. I mm -hmm. honestly like uh just uh, yeah, just a couple of couple of weeks ago. So, uh, okay. I know we can't travel, I know we can't go abroad, but I just wanna see the sea and and, and it's about it's about the feeling of space really and um yeah so i like i love forests as well but my dream is one day to live somewhere where i have uh, you know a house with a garden and then forest on one side and sea on the other side <laughs> um but yeah i don't know if i'll ever be able to afford uh, that kind of place that's well, that is a very nice dream i like that one <laughs> yeah 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 Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk um, with me today. And I really look forward to seeing, you know, what kind of um, books and articles and conferences, talks grow out of this project. I think there's there's so much potential here. So it's, it's an exciting thing to have on the horizon. So I, I hope, um, you know, travel opens up soon and um, everyone is able to kind of make the most of this project. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks I hope so, so too. Take care. You too. Please follow the link on the Nature Mono website to the Whales of Power website. Dr. Rhodes's first book, Shinto, Nature, and Ideology in Contemporary Japan, Making Sacred Forests, is available via Bloomsbury Press. My thanks again to Dr. Ike Rotes for taking the time to speak with me. Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.